Okay, hopefully you gathered a sheet here this morning for the lesson. It is a longer one, so you should have a front and a back on this. Uh, So uh, we're covering a larger section of material, and as what you're going to find as we get closer to the end here, we will cover larger sections. And you go, why is that? Well, you have to remember that Ecclesiastes kind of flips right here in the middle. This is the middle passage uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes, And it kind of then, as you go through the rest of Ecclesiastes in reverse order, covers themes that we've already hit. And then gives us the conclusion at the end of the start of what, you know, is the prophet of life. Uh, He gives it right at the end of the book. And so we have the high point right here in the center and a lot of material here. And we called this section haste and waste, uh, or haste is the cliche is makes waste. Uh, in this case, you have uh, all sorts of things in this that uh, can go to waste or can be hasty, and so uh, thus uh, the title of this lesson. As you go through this uh, section, it is uh, one that uh, is about what you trust in. Okay, what do you put your faith in, and, and we say maybe our confidence in? And remember that uh, much of what is uh, said by Solomon in this section, in these sections, is given from the perspective of one who is under the sun, who just merely lives in this life, the day in, the day out, the seasons, the years, and that's it. Nothing beyond that. And so some of the things that he says are rather pessimistic and uh, rather uh, just kind of harsh at times. Because if you look at life just from the perspective that this is it, it can be harsh at times in life. The abruptness of things happening and the finality sometimes of what occurs uh, can be uh, devastating. But <clears throat> what we have in, in verse, uh, or chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7 is kind of a statement of uh, individual, we'll put it this way, trust in hasty words to God will gain nothing but judgment. Okay, we'll, we'll just kind of give you that, uh, that statement as we go through and read the first seven verses here. And you can perhaps get a, a lay and understanding of what we may be talking about here. But verse 1 says this, it says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou art upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel or the messenger that it was an error. Wherefore God would be, or excuse me, therefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands, for in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God." you come to this and you're you're kind of almost hopeful as you come to this passage because you have someone that you've kind of been looking for in this book. Go, what's that? Someone that's looking to God 
outside of this life. Okay, to this point, you've had people who are just living life and going about life as, as if this is it. You actually have in this passage someone who is considering God. Finally, you'd say that we might say in our terms, they're religious. They're considering the things of God. And you have this. Finally, it seems like this is the one who we're found that we're looking for that is looking beyond the sun. He's not just merely focusing on the things under the sun, but he's looking beyond the sun to the one who's created all these things. Uh, For Solomon, a worshiper is spotted coming into the presence of God. He offers sacrifices and makes vows. He looks like the person for whom the writer has been looking. And you're finally, aha, this is the answer. And it is the answer, but the problem is this person is coming into the presence of God with their own set of desires and plans rather than God's plans. So we've just gotten through the section that talks about time and that God orders seasons and he has certain times for certain events and he brings certain things to us and that we ought to enjoy the things as he brings them to us, uh, the daily uh, events in life. And here you have a person who is thinking this, that if they come into the presence of God and do some of the things that he says and make statements to him, that they may force God's hand to do what they want to do under the sun. Put it this way, this is the problem, this is the person that makes vows and sacrifices and think that they will gain favor with God. It is almost as if he is offering a bribe to God to give him things, or speaking of God, to give him things that may not have necessarily been in God's plan or time. See, what would happen with individuals is that you had uh, examples of people making vows in the temple. Can you think of an individual like this? I mean, it's a lady. You know, she prays for a son, and she what? She vows that she will give her son back to God. And you go, does she do this? Yeah, she does that. But this is after a sincere approach to God, and as you read her words, she's a person who knows the Word of God. I mean, her... her kind of magnificat that she sings uh, there in First Samuel chapter 2 uh, is on the parallel to what Mary comes up with when she sings praise to God. Uh, there's scripture throughout her statement, and she makes a vow to God. But there are certain people that come to church, we might put it that way, or in this time, come to the temple and think that this is some sort of payoff to God. If I sacrifice by singing praise to him or uh, I make statements that uh, I'll do certain things that God will then kind of be forced into a corner and go, okay, well, you kind of want this and this, so I'll let you have this even though that's not part of God's plan. And the danger of this, and I'll put it this way, we'll give you the the next uh, thing in notes here, this person is really casual in their approach to God. It's not really that they're coming in and focusing on God throughout their whole life and living life as if God really truly does exist and that it's not just Sunday or in this case Saturday that God is really important and then I live my life out the rest of the week. Okay, no, a person who fears the Lord fears the Lord all the time. 
mean, he comes to God and, and uh, worships him on the day that he's got set aside, but as he goes throughout the week, he's considering life in relation to God throughout. This person seems to be one who comes in and gives many words on the worship service. Says all sorts of things of praise and promise to God. But then just kind of goes out the rest of the week and lives life once again as one living under the sun. As if God really doesn't play a part in life. As God doesn't really play a role in life. And so they make rash vows. Rash promises in, in a worship service that they aren't going to keep the rest of the week. But they do it in that service, and and then they go out, and you say, well, what's the danger of that? Well, the danger of that is that this person uh, is taking something lightly that God does not take lightly. We're going to talk about this in in, uh, Romans here this morning as we go through Romans 9 and start off in this, is that God made covenants and promises and the whole argument of Romans 9, 10, 11 is, this, does God break his promises? Because that's really important when it comes to our salvation, because God promised the salvation, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can that possibly be broken? Because God suddenly goes, well, you know what, it's been a long time, or you know, conditions have changed on this, oh well, I won't keep that promise. No, God, God keeps his promises. God keeps his vows. And so when we as individuals who are reflections of the image of God, we're created in his image, when we promise to do things and we don't do that, what we're doing is reflecting badly on what God's like. We're not acting in his image. We don't look like him. And God doesn't take that lightly because he doesn't take his promises lightly. He keeps them. Whereas this person is one who makes a vow, hoping that it'll get him something in the moment, and will not change. Now, we do need to at least step back here, and you go, if I make a vow on something and it was a really stupid vow, promise, perhaps even sinful, uh, is there allowance for me to step back from that? As you read through Leviticus, there are accounts where individuals who made vows, especially young ladies and and the like, if their father realizes they've made this vow, they can actually go in and offer sacrifice and say, okay, you know, that vow should never have taken place. Okay, there are allowances for forgiveness and uh, and recognition that perhaps this was a rash vow in our sinfulness. But In this case, what you have is just somebody who's going into the presence of God trying to get what they want and then ignoring God the rest of the week. I mean, that's what's going on here. It's It's a rash vow. And so this is why in verse number seven, it ends with this statement that's just kind of really a a command of very blunt statement, but very much important in this passage, is fear thou God. Or we would just simply say, fear God. Act as if he really does exist in every part of life, not just that one time where you come in and you're saying something hasty and then you walk back out again and don't think about God. 
Fear God. Act as if he really does play a role in everything. He's the one with whom we have to do, as the New Testament places it. And so you have this individual who's hasty in words because they think, okay, this is going to gain me something, and their sacrifices uh, that they offer are hasty because they think it's going to get them something from God, rather than really living their life as looking to have fellowship with him and having him be a part. So that's the first thing that goes on here, not being hasty in words. So a person, as you have there, trust in hasty words to God, will gain nothing but judgment. Okay, you're, you're going to get the reverse of what you think you're going to get out of God. God's going to just say, okay, I'm going to make life difficult for you until you do what you have promised. But the second thing that we have here in Ecclesiastes is this, trust in the fairness of government will bring disappointment. Now, you say, why is the sudden shift here? And I, I sat here and thought why we went from this and in the Solomon's thinking, and suddenly we have this statement about government. And think about what government is. Government is a visible representation of authority. Just like you as parents are visible representatives of God and his authority. This is why you have in the Ten Commandments the first four that talk about God and the last five that talk about how we act towards one another. But in the middle there you have number five is honor thy father and thy mother. You go, why is that? Because what happens is that parents are the what? Visible authority. They're like God. And so it is, government has that kind of responsibility in life. God's given that kind of responsibility to government. So there are some people that come to government and think, okay, the, this uh, entity can solve all of our problems. And there are some that trust in government. And, and this is what you have in verse number eight. Verse number nine makes this statement. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field." What do you have going on here? Some look to government to solve all their problems. This can be a frustrating confidence. <laughs> it doesn't do what you want to do. The rulers are men and at, time, at times ignore responsibility and abuse power. This is a regular theme under the sun. You know, I find this to be the case. You can talk about what goes on in local government, you can go and talk about what's happening in the United States government and you fly to another country, and what are you going to find in the news? They're going to be complaining about their government because they're not accomplishing what they're supposed to be accomplishing. See, this, this should not be a shock to us, but there are certain people that are saying, okay, this ought to be the case, but they look around and they're going, there's all sorts of things that are unfair and unjust and not right with this, and they get really, really upset by it. In fact, they get wound up by this. 
And in getting wound up by this, they're, they're crying for justice. And what they forget about is the second line here. Some would cry for justice. The writer notes in this passage that there is a, we put it this way, higher power is the terminology we use for it in modern U.S. government. You know, there was a belief when they wrote the Constitution in a higher power. Uh, they also wrote the document because they realized that men were not angels. I mean, that, that was the statement. That you had individuals that realized that men were not angels and thus they must have something uh, at least over them to try and keep them from displaying their sinfulness. To try and bound that. Uh, that's why we had the document of the Constitution. But there was a belief in the higher power. The higher power is God, and he will bring, to justice, bring justice to those who oppress. So here, here's the thing. I'm a person who's taught history for a number of years. I'm getting ready to teach this again this year in, in, uh, in class. And I have a, a love of politics. It's entertaining because it's real life, and real life can sometimes be very entertaining as far as uh, better than fiction at times, uh, what uh, goofiness and silliness sometimes goes on. But I can sit and fret. Okay? I can fret about the news and what government is doing and spend my life fretting about it. Or I can say, okay, I acknowledge this, and this is going on here, and this is going on here, and I ought to pray that God takes care of this, but I shouldn't let it be my life that somehow if I can fix that individual and that policy, that it will solve all of my problems if I just take care of that, and someone takes care of that, and the answer is, there is one who's watching who will take care of every injustice, and he's got the capability to keep track of it, and he's got the capability to take care of it. So don't spend your life going, okay, here's my confidence in government, and it's not very good, but I'm going to fret about this, that there's injustice everywhere. No, recognize there's a higher power. He's observing everything. His eye is going to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. And he will ultimately judge and hand out justice as it needs to be fit. So, you as a regular person, though we have ability at times to take care of some of these things by election box and by other things in our country, there is a higher power observing. So don't let this be your confidence that if we could just fix this, everything would be okay. No, because then you'd have another person. And, and guess what? The people in your political party have the same sin nature as the people in the other political party. We sometimes forget that. And so you, you go through this and you have that statement being made and then you have this verse 9 and it doesn't seem to go with anything. I mean, all of a sudden it says, moreover, the, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. What, what has that got to do with anything? Well, simply this. Verse 9 makes a statement that government is not something to abandon due to this failure. The king finds profit in the field. You know, you say, how's that? Uh, through taxes or through other things. And so government actually does provide some protections in life. 
It does provide structure. The alternative, what the writer here is, Solomon, is saying is that the alternative is not a very good idea. You don't want anarchy, as some in our society are claiming that this would be better if we just had complete anarchy and then we would solve all our problems because government's got its problems. Well, yes, government has its problems, but the absence of government, it's not going to go very well. And so in the midst of all this and saying that government has its problems and and there's going to be difficulties and there's a higher power watching over this, the solution is not no government because there is profit in the structure and the protection and the things that the king does. There is some profit in this for all in the process. So that is that statement uh, there at verse 9 that doesn't really seem immediately a fit, but that's kind of the idea there. So we go through trust in hasty words will gain you nothing but judgment, but then you have this trust in the fairness of government will bring disappointment. If that's what you're looking to get, you're going to be disappointed in life. And if that's all you have is this thing under the sun, you're going to be very dissatisfied. You'll die a frustrated person unless you realize there's a higher power that's observing all of this. He's going to take care of it. He'll hand out the justice that is uh, rightfully needed. But then you have the third thing. Trust in uncertain riches will lead to despair. Maybe we can manipulate God. Well, that's the hasty words. Maybe government will solve problems for me. No. Well, I'm just going to have to do things for myself. I'm going to have to garner wealth and income and money for myself, and those will take care of my problems. That's what a lot of people will do, is that they are building themselves a defense wall by the gathering of riches. I mean, for some, riches, uh, for some people, is the answer to all of life's problem. They put their confidence in the almighty dollar, which <laughs> the almighty dollar is, you know, not worth much. Uh, it's a piece of paper, uh, if you didn't realize that. Not backed by anything. But they they put their confidence in this money as if it's going to solve their problems. However, the the author notes several problems with placing trust in money. Let's just read through this as it starts in verse number 10. And it's going to sound kind of New Testament-y, if I use that word. Uh, It's going to sound like the New Testament uh, as you read through here. Verse 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver nor he that loveth abundance with increase, this is also vanity. When goods are increased, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this is also a sore evil, that in all points as he came shall he go. And what profit hath he that he hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness." Say, what's the very first thing that you note here? First is this, one who loves money will never have enough. 
read the statement. I've heard it several times and read it again and was reading through this. Uh, John Rockefeller, who was a man who had everything. He was the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk of his day back in the 1800s and early 1900s was asked uh, about his bank account and, he said, and was asked this, are you ever satisfied? And he goes, no, I would just like a little bit more. One has penned it this uh, way, it's a modern author, has uh, called this problem that all people seem to have with just having a little bit more, they, they call it affluenza. And we talk about influenza as being a sickness and the flu, but they call it affluenza, which is an unhealthy interest in money and the getting and gaining of it. But it seems like a lot of people are impacted by this. As we have there, chapter 5 and verse 10 sounds a lot like 1 Timothy 6 and following. In verse 9 there in 1 Timothy 6 makes this statement. I think we probably could quote it, but they that will be rich fall into a temptation and snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. Okay, not money. For the love of it. The desire to have it. And this is something that can affect both poor and rich. Okay. The desire to have what they don't have. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Sounds like Paul had read Ecclesiastes. But you have this. The one who loves money will never have enough. The love of money will eventually drown a person it will consume them to the point where they can do nothing else. And so the love of money will eventually drown a person. But secondly, you see this. Money is something of which others are looking to relieve you. And that's kind of what you have there in verse number uh, 11. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. You know, this is what advertising is doing. They're trying to separate you from your money. And you need this, and you need this, and oh, you've got this money. Well, I've got something that I, you know. And we live life, if you have money, there's someone who would love to have that money. Whether it be by stealing it or just simply by persuasion persuading you to give them the money. But the more money you have, that's the case. You're poor, guess what? People aren't trying to persuade you of anything because they know you have nothing. But in today's society, you can even persuade poor people to take on credit and put themselves even more in debt. But there are people out there that, yeah, well, are looking to relieve you by persuasion or theft. Third, the maintaining of wealth does not give rest to its owner. In verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. And here you got this person who's working really, really hard, and they're just barely getting enough to eat, have a house over their head, you know, place to stay. That's it. And they go home, and they sleep, and they go back out and work again. You know, if anybody was to steal anything from their house, it would be none of value. So they just go home and enjoy what they have. But then you have on the other side, here's this individual, uh, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You go, why is that? Okay, there may be somebody creeping in my house to steal something. 
you know, my investments in, in whatever, Siam, uh, I've got to check them. They're in full, you know, it's fully morning over there. I've got to make sure those things are going well. So I've got to keep track of those things that they're going well. And just, you just kind of go on and on with this. A person who has wealth doesn't get to sleep, even though you think, well, they, they have all the ability to sleep. They got all the comforts of life. They ought to be able to sleep. No, they can't because there's so much uh, to do with the things that you have and you might lose it. Fourth, this is kind of that last uh, statement there of this sore evil. And uh, verse 14, by those riches perish by evil travail. Uh, We would kind of call this a crash or a depression that suddenly happens. There are times in, in life where there's no way you're going to stop the loss of your money. You know, you have the run on the bank and the bank has no money and no one has money and so you have this crash. And we've got very, uh, you know, these stories that we have from back in Wall Street when it collapsed in the, the 1920s and, and the 1930s of people committing suicide. Just jumping off buildings and whatever because they suddenly realized, realized it was all gone but they couldn't do anything to solve it. And you're going, but don't those people realize there's more to life than the amount of money they've made? There's relationships that are a part of life. There's other things that there may be that they need to do with the life that they have now that they don't have the money that's there. But for some people, it's this. I'm going to try and protect myself from losing my money. And all of a sudden, that financial crash happens uh, as it does normally in the cycle of life. And they're totally devastated. And you go, well, couldn't they have done things to prevent it? And you're like... It's just part of what happens in life. But for people who live and put their trust in money, this is absolutely devastating to them. They don't come back from this. The focus of their trust is gone, and so they don't know what to do. And so here you have people who trust in uncertain riches that if they live for that, they will ultimately end their life in despair. It's not going to bring them the delight, the happiness that they thought. Now, that's not going to be to say that you shouldn't have money. Because if God in his divvying out and his organizing and putting things out there allows you to enjoy certain things, God is not saying, well, if you've got wealth, be miserable. If he gives you that, be miserable. Because you actually, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and you follow on from that passage, there is instructions in in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18 for those who are wealthy, what to do with your money. And it doesn't say sell all that you have and get rid of it and be miserable. It's saying use your money wisely for the beyond. Not just for this life, but for the life to come. Uh, Use it wisely. What you have is closing off here is that Solomon goes, okay, let me get you right to the center of this. And this point, I would argue in the structure of the book, is the main point that we're going to go back down to and get once again at the end of the book. And it's simply this. Look at verse 18. It says this, behold, that which I've seen, it is good 
and comely for one to eat and to drink and enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him. For it is his portion, it's his inheritance. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and take his portion, his inheritance, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. I put it this way in, in, in closing. This is the center of the book. The writer will come back to this theme of fearing God in the end. This section is to help one get their focus off this life alone. Real living only occurs, uh, real living only comes from focusing beyond this life and placing a trust in God. What I have is God giving me certain things. I'm a steward of them. Whether it be wealth or health, I enjoy the time that I have, the the wealth that I have as a gift from God. And I go through and simply live every day understanding that God could suddenly say, okay, I don't want you to be steward, I don't want you to be a steward of this anymore. And if I have a trust in God, I'm not devastated by that. You know, there may be some difficulty and, and uh, more so than normal, but I don't allow that to devastate me. Because if I understand that God holds the times and the season, there's a time for this and a time for that, and God organizes life and he's got a structure for it and he's in charge of everything and, and these certain things come up, I'm just realizing I enjoy every day as it comes. I may not have tomorrow. So I live my life, I eat, I drink, or whatsoever I do, I do what? I do all to the glory of God. So I don't put trust in trying to bend God to my own ways with hasty words and sacrifices on a Sunday. No, I I think about him and fellowship with him throughout the week, part of my life. Uh, I don't trust in government to solve all my problems, though I do understand that God places governments in certain times and situations and tears those down and puts new ones in. He does that, uh, but my trust is not in the government. It's my trust is in God to take care of everything. And ultimately this, the money that I have or don't have, it's not going to solve all my problems. It's not going to take care of everything. In fact, uh, it's only a tool that God gives us as a steward to manage what he's given to us as our responsibility. So I live my life day in and day out fearing God. And that's, remember, not just the quaking thing. It's I'm acting as if he really does exist. He's got a part in it. And you'll be li- able to live life. Okay, live your life to the fullest, to the glory of God. Because one day you will have to stand before him, give him a, give an account on how you lived your life, enjoying what God gave, but also reflecting back to the world that there is a God who's in charge, and he takes care of those that are his own, and we ought to reflect that. So that's what, where we're at. That's the heart of the book. And so we start working our way back now. Uh, to the end where we finally get this statement made once again magnified that you fear God and prepare one day for standing before him.
and uh, live life daily. Lord, we thank you. There's a reminder, we may have come in this week and bank account may have been a little bit lower than what we expected, some bills that were just out of the blue in some cases, and could be some frustration there that uh, wealth that we thought we had is suddenly gone, and we look at the news and realize the government is passing bills that are not even close to what we would deem as appropriate or right or moral. And uh, we could even be coming here today and thinking that uh, we are supposed to be getting something out of you today or from you and manipulate that. But no, we're, we're here today and every day of the week to know you better, to live life in relation to you, and just joy in the things that you have allowed us to have. May we live as not covetous individuals, but satisfied in who you are and what you are and what you have given and live day in and day out and then reflect to the world, magnify to the world so that they can see that there is something beyond the sun, that there's a God that really does care for everyone and that you cared so much that you even sent your son. You gave the greatest gift, the most important thing. May we reflect that in our life as we live it daily to the world. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.